Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? I know we're all working to leave the memory of 2020 behind. Besides the pandemic, we saw wildfires raging in Australia, California, and Siberia. Near-record low sea ice in the Arctic and a hailstorm that caused $1.3 billion worth of damage in Calgary. Climate change is costly. It's also scary for anyone who's paying attention. But few feel that fear as strongly as young people. What do we want? Climate justice! What do we want it yesterday? Um, it's kind of our future, so I think we're the ones who should be protecting it now. Those are some of the voices from the 2019 climate strike started by Greta Thunberg that spread around the world. The strikes, led by youth, were a turning point in the climate change debate. But here's the thing. Parents know how vulnerable their children can be to the worries and realities of a changing climate. It's really the sense of a foreshortened future. I think that's sort of the dominant worry that I hear from teens in particular. Today, how to talk to kids about climate change because kids say ignoring it is not the way to go. We're the ones holding you accountable. You have to tell us so we can, you know, fight for our future. We'll bring you tips from a teacher, a psychologist, and that 15-year-old climate activist you just heard. But first, let's hear from parents about what their kids say when they're sitting around the dinner table or just trying to go to sleep. Really, the moments that resonate are the really unexpected moments where there's sort of an off-the-cuff remark from the teenager that says, well, it's not going to matter because the climate is changing and we don't know if we're going to be here. Like that kind of really existential question wrapped up in a teenager's tossed-away comments is really kind of hard to hear. It was a big, big theme before COVID. It's what he wanted to talk about every night before he went to bed. He would go from sort of being just grief-stricken and upset about it to some nights would sort of be lying in bed thinking about solutions. My kids come back from school and they talk about the stages of salmon growth. And so they're starting to add now that with climate impact, those salmon are not able to go back to those same streams. And so this year decided to be a vegetarian because she started reading about the impact that raising cattle have on the planet. She did come home as a seven, eight-year-old, very upset about the polar bears one day, like extraordinarily so. We had to sit down and and talk about that because I don't know if they saw some horrible video, but definitely she had seen a video with some very emaciated looking polar bears. Why are we allowing this to happen? And he was also putting the pieces together too, like saying things like, um, you know, I feel really torn because I want to see my cousins who live in Ireland, but planes use oil and isn't that bad for climate change. So if we go to see them, is it making climate change worse? I find that also there's a bit of anger at, at my generation and the generations that come before where it's like, you 
knew this was happening. You had lots of warning. Why haven't you done something? It's just a question of putting your mind to it and finding the, the will to change. That's the part I think that she has had some frustration around is how much are we doing? Is it enough? Why do people like Greta have these massive demonstrations? If we're doing the right thing, then it should be okay. And why is that? Don't we care? So you have to kind of try and navigate that conversation, you know, explaining that a lot of people do care. A lot of people are doing great work, but we need everybody to get on side. And that takes a lot of education. You know, and what her school is doing is a part of that. And what can we do? If when we're waiting for hockey, he sees other parents with the cars on, he makes a comment about, oh, shouldn't they be turning off their cars? And I'm like, well, you can't really tell them that. It was actually my daughter who really strongly suggested that we as a family take part in climate change marches. We need to get together. We need to make our voices heard. And that was really quite encouraging. But I also know it's a bit of a fearful for her. She's actually expressed her concerns or her doubts about becoming a parent. And that's hard to hear from a kid. She had been told in her science classes that these were serious issues. And she got quite worried about it. And so we, I just did what I was told. <laughs> I let her basically tell me what she wanted me to do. And I tried to respect that as a way of reassuring her that something could be done. And I, I talked to her as recently as last week. And she said, frankly, my biggest thing is I have anxiety that we're just never going to solve this at all. Those fears are real, but the good news is there are ways to cope with worrying thoughts about the future so they don't become overwhelming. Dr. Christine Coral is a registered psychologist and director of the Vancouver Anxiety Centre. She's been helping kids and adults with anxiety for more than two decades. Hello. Hello. In your practice, what do you see in terms of anxiety about climate change? Well, it can be a number of different things. It could be passing worries. And if there's a, a news story, um, I certainly had a lot more discussion with kids about it when the protests were happening before the pandemic. Um, and it can also be more serious, um, say, for kids who have obsessive compulsive disorder or other anxiety disorders, where they just can't shift their thoughts off of climate catastrophe and it's keeping them up at night and they've got sore tummies and are really struggling. Can you give me some sense of what these kids say to you? It can be, you know, for older teens, it might be things like uh, saying that they don't want to have children or how it alters their plans. Uh, wondering, you know, how much time that they have before things get really bad. Younger children, it will be often sometimes misconceptions and confusion about, you know, it, it, like feeling like it could be tomorrow that something bad is going to happen. So not having the same sense of time. But it's really the sense of a foreshortened future. I think that's sort of the dominant worry that I hear from teens in particular. With the, with the younger kids, it almost sounds like a, a modern day example of the monster under the bed. Yes, yes, very much so. And so there's often a lot of misconceptions. So as parents, one of the things that you can do is really focus on making sure you understand exactly what your child is worried about, because a lot of times they're worried about things that they don't need to. Before we get to how you should talk to kids about climate change, mm -hmm. what should we not be doing? Uh, kids pick up on how we're doing. And so if we're anxious about it, uh, we can pass those fears on to kids. You know, I, I've certainly talked with a lot of parents 
who were more nervous than the kids and looking for signs of climate anxiety in their kids. And maybe their kids weren't doing so bad until the parents started probing too much. So it's one thing if your child, you know, brings up a fear, then address it. Um, but if they aren't and you start poking around, you can you can instill some of your own fear. What about saying, just don't worry so much? Does that work? No, that, that, that never works. I never tell a patient not to worry. So what we usually do in therapy is we talk about how to come up with a coping plan. So most people in our lives, when we're worried about something, say, oh, don't worry, or that'll be so far in the future. But those of us who worry know that it could happen. So instead in therapy, what we do is we go into the worst case scenario. And I really want to hear what people are afraid of, what they're nervous about. Uh, I, I often use the example of when I've worked with kids who are afraid of ghosts. Uh, one time I worked with a little boy and he was worried about them. And oh, he asked me, do you believe in them? And I said, what does your mother say? And uh, he said, well, she doesn't say they're true. And I'm like, do you believe her? And he goes, no, she believes in God. So she believes in ghosts. So I said, okay, well, what could you do if a ghost showed up in your room? And he said, I'd scream. And I said, well, that's a great idea. Someone's going to come running and help you out. And we started to do a list of all the different things that he could do if a ghost showed up in his room. And Towards the end of making this list, he said, well, maybe I want to keep a camera on my nightstand so I can get a picture of the ghost if it shows up. And I'm like, that's cool, because not everybody gets to see a ghost. So it might be good to see if you could have a picture. But all while you're doing this, and it's a very simple thing to do, to bring, and it's easier sometimes to brainstorm with somebody else when you're nervous, all the things that you can do. But it increases your, your belief and your ability to cope with things. What age would you start talking about climate change with kids? Uh, for little kids, um, I would just sort of pick up fears as they came along, and I would focus on fostering love of nature and taking care of the earth and um, lots of playtime and distraction, though, for the most part, and keeping the TV off. Once they start asking questions, and you'll see they'll start talking about this stuff in social studies class in school and um, you know, when they get eight, nine, ten, there's, they start asking better questions. When they're 12 or 13, they start to develop more critical thinking skills. And so you're going to have deeper conversations and probably deal more with anger at how dumb adults are to have destroyed the planet and to let it happen so you can help them process some of that anger and, uh, you know, agree with them and, and tell them that, you know, their perspective is not completely off, but then get them to focus on problem solving yeah. and what they can do to take action. What would you say to a young person who doesn't look forward to summer anymore because it might be smoky from wildfires or who can't sleep in the spring because they're scared of flooding or who associates the fall with hurricanes? Mm -hmm. So then I talk about, well, what's the safety plan you can put together with your family? What are the things that you can do? How can you enjoy uh, the outdoors? You know, when there isn't a uh, forest fire, it help you appreciate uh, what you have when, when it's, when it's still, the air is still clear. What can, what action can you take? If they're older, I'd have them write their MPs and MLAs and speak up or join an organization that helps, um, advocate for the environment. So it's finding all those little things. It's very individual, but it's, it's typically, you know, what actions can they take? What can they enjoy in the moment? And then how can they get through? What's their coping plan? And I usually actually try not to 
plant too much in them. I, I get them to, to outline it and I, I stay quiet and take notes for why, them. <laughs> why does it help to focus on doing something? Well, I think when you feel powerless and you're sitting back and you're not feeling you're, you, that there is something that can be done, you can feel overwhelmed. Like it's just like a steamroller and it's going to it's gonna flatten you and there's nothing that you can do. So if you feel like there's something that you can do or a plan that you can take or um, even, if, even if it's a plan for coping with your own sadness when there's a forest fire, that, that, that helps you get through. It gives you a, a roadmap and a plan and something that you can hang on to when you're having a darker moment. So interesting, Dr. Coral. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's head into the classroom. Aisha Yacoub talks to young people all day as a high school teacher at Regina's Balfour Collegiate. She's working climate change into her English curriculum, and she's learned a few things herself along the way. Hello, Aisha. Hi. Before we get into how you talk to students about climate change, I've got to ask why. What made you want to teach climate in the English classroom? I think back to my experiences in school and the things that really stuck with me were things that I could relate to or at least contextualize around me. And so when I think about how to make my learning relatable for my students, I think about bringing in real life situations, what's going on around them, how they can contribute to it. Um, and over the years, I've learned that climate change is one that young people really care about. How does that dovetail, though, with lessons about Shakespeare and grammar? <laughs> So our the English curriculum that I bring it in to is actually really open-ended. It's very thematic. And so I focus on one of our themes being equity and ethics. We tie some of that into Shakespeare, Macbeth, but we can also tie that into climate change and climate crisis and other things too. So it actually works out really nicely. All right. When you, when you start the conversation with them about climate change, how do you start? I usually just start with asking them where they're at, checking in, doing a lot of what do we already know about this topic. Over the years, I've found that that's usually the best way that we can start our learning and move forward. And in general, what do the students already know? Lots of them think they know all the things. And then as we start our conversations, we realize that they just know the tip of the iceberg. And so a lot of the common understandings of climate crisis or climate change really is just about reduce, reuse, recycle. Kids are very familiar with plastic straws, but some of the deeper conversations or some of the more complex conversations, the greenhouse gases, when we bring all of those in, a lot of the kids are shocked and surprised. And so they know a little bit, um, but the common kind of area that I've found most of my students are at is really just that reduce, reuse, recycle and plastic straws, really. Do you ever find yourself having to debunk misinformation they might have found online? <laughs> um, with the age of technology and social media, <laughs> they always come at me with stories from Snapchat and, oh, my friend posted this and so-and-so said this. So we are constantly debunking information or misinformation um, that they find online. That's actually part of the course that I teach early on, that critical thinking piece. And so by the end of it, they actually get pretty good at you know, cross-referencing and fact-checking and all of that. So it's a pretty cool experience that we do together. So take me back to your first year when you were teaching about climate change. How could you tell when something wasn't working and that the kids were actually getting overwhelmed? 
I had a few lessons like any first year teacher would that at the end of it, I just sat down and went, wow, that that totally bombed. And so there were a few times in my first year where I could tell right away kids were overwhelmed and anxious, seeing the shock on their face. And I can't remember what documentary we watched that year, but one of the students had picked one out. And midway through, I look over and I just see absolute panic. And so I pause it and I say, you know, what happened? Did I miss something? And well, we didn't know this was happening. And, you know, this is telling us there's a possibility we might die from this. And and how can we stop this from happening in our earth and on and on and on. And so a lot of it came off the face, facial expressions. Lots of it came off of the discussions that just the feelings of anxiety around this just never seemed to end. It was just continuous. And so halfway through when I realized, you know, this may be a little too much, we may need to step back and approach this differently. So instead of feeling panicked, they can feel empowered or, you know, inspired to do something. How did you change things up from there? Uh, We had a lot of honest conversations. I talked to the kids about, you know, what do you think would help you? And a lot of the discussion was around them feeling like we're just so young. Nobody's going to take us seriously. What can we even do at this point? And so what we started doing near the end of that first semester, we started taking a look at people who were making change. We took a look at some activists. We took a look at some youth activists to showcase that, you know, even though we're young, we still have a voice and we can still use that voice to advocate for things we care about. So what kind of things did did they do? So one of the assignments that I actually incorporate within this, and it's part of our curriculum, is to write a business letter. And so what we did with the students was we said, okay, why don't you write to the people who make the decisions? And so again, after feeling like maybe they wouldn't be heard, we convinced them and, and got that ball going. And so had a few students write to the mayor of Regina, had some reach out to the Minister of Environment with our provincial government, had some send letters to Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, and so they were able to really put their action forward. And so that was one thing we did as a class. I'm curious on the on the letter writing campaign, did anyone get any replies? Did it move the needle anywhere? Yeah, we got responses. We got them from the city and then the Minister of Environment from the government as well, which was awesome because a few weeks had passed and kids were starting to feel like maybe it wasn't, they didn't receive them or they weren't getting responses back. I think the ones that wrote to Prime Minister Trudeau did receive letters just a little bit later. A few of them, some of their suggestions that they had passed forward, specifically to the city of Regina, a few of their letters had said, you know, this is an awesome idea. We're actually going to be discussing this at our next meeting. And so they were really excited about, you know, they were being taken seriously along with everybody else who's also been voicing concerns. So I've, I've got a sense from what you've been saying about how, how they responded, but I just want to ask you that um, more specifically. How did they respond to having something that they felt they could do about it? I think for them, it was just huge that they were being taken seriously. A lot of the conversations we had before this letter writing assignment was that adults don't take youth seriously. And a lot of them are really disheartened at that and and really believe that, which broke my heart, but working towards helping them see it differently. So it was really awesome to see them feel empowered and, and know that this is an option for them to do as well, that they can continue writing letters, either advocating about this climate crisis or for climate change or about even other things that they're passionate about. Aisha Yacoub, I know that um, being a teacher is challenging at the best of times, and I know the pandemic has made it even more so. So I really appreciate you making the time to, to talk to us today. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, Amelia Penny Crocker knows a thing or two about writing letters to leaders. Dear Mr. Prime Minister and all those it may concern, it's me, Amelia Penny Crocker, again with my weekly letters about the climate crisis. This letter is a little different. Though I wrote it, it is not really from me. A letter from a child in the future. Do you remember when we used to have seasons like fall, winter, spring, and summer? Now we have fire season, drought season, flood season, and hurricane season. I live in a refugee camp. They say we're in the middle of something called a climate crisis. They say it started coming a long time ago and that we figured out that humans driving cars and planes and eating meat was making everything go funny. And then they kept doing it. And that's why the world is how it is. I wish the people of the past had been smarter and thought about me and all the other people who have to live like this because of what they did. They may not be here suffering, but I am. I am in the middle of the crisis they knew was coming, and I don't like it. From the child of the future to the people of the past. I hope you have a wonderful day, Amelia Penny Crocker. The 15-year-old Halifax student has spent the last year writing a letter every week to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau calling for climate action. Hi, Amelia. Hi. When you started writing to the Prime Minister, what were you hoping could happen? I don't know. I mean, I just... I couldn't sit around and do nothing, you know? I Obviously, I go to protests, I organize protests, I, I do all sorts of other things, but I'm a writer, and I thought, and I thought, well, who could I write to? What, what, what could I write about? Like, well, I'll write to the Prime Minister, I'll write letters. Well, let's talk about some of your writing then. Can you tell us a story you told Justin Trudeau in your first letter about talking to a nine-year-old about climate change? I, I have a lot of younger friends, and one of my friends, she's 10 now, but um, at the time she was 9. And I was talking about climate change in her presence, but we said something that she didn't know that really made her upset and really made her worried about her own future. And she just she looked at me and she said, what about my hopes and dreams? And that just made me so sad and so angry like what about you know her hopes and dreams what about my hopes and dreams what about you know every kid on this planet's hopes and dreams you know our our future looks so bleak but it doesn't have to like there's so much we could be doing and yet we don't and it really makes me angry and really makes me sad especially looking at my, this my nine-year-old friend and all the other young people that I know who are so incredible and deserve so much better from our government. Amelia, I've got to say that, that I can just imagine some listeners um, hearing you right now and, and them thinking to themselves, she's only 15. Why is she worrying about all this? She should just all be enjoying being a teenager. <laughs> well, I would maybe agree with them. I'd love to enjoy being a teenager, but it's kind of hard to do that when you know, you're aware of the fact that by the time you are a grown-up, um, this planet, half of it might not be livable, there may not be any resources left, you know, things might look really bleak and difficult for you when you're an adult, and, um, you know, it's 
I feel like I often think that maybe I won't get a chance to be a grown-up, so maybe I'll be a grown-up now. <laughs> but let me ask you this then. When you imagine being 30 or 40 or 50, what, what kind of a future do you imagine? Well, I kind of have two futures that I imagine. There's one future in which we figure this out, in which we, you know, unite as a globe around this crisis, and we use this crisis, really, to make ourselves a better place. And, you know, the climate crisis is caused by broken systems. And so I imagine a world where we, where we have overcome systemic racism, systemic misogyny, homophobia, and other forms of bigotry, and we're a world that lives in more harmony and we use green energy. That's one future that I imagine. But of course, I also imagine a future where we don't figure this out. I imagine a future where we have huge amounts of climate refugees, where the weather is extremely unstable and everything is very unsafe. I imagine a world where there is limited food sources, limited water, and where my children can't go to school because the government doesn't have enough money to fund public education. I, you know, I imagine a world that is much worse than the one we're living in now. There was, those are the kind of the two uh, visions that drive me, you know? If we can get back to the, to the letters for just a second, does it help you to be doing something like writing the letters? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, like, to be able to sit down every week and, you know, channel my anger and my sadness into a letter that then, you know, gets sent off to the prime minister and might actually have some impact, that's, you know, that's really helpful because, for one, you need an outlet for your anger and sadness about a crisis this big. Um, but for your outlet for that to also be working to stop that crisis and to fix it, like that's that's really powerful. And honestly, it's really helpful. We have heard from a lot of adults on this episode of, of the show so far. I'm wondering what your advice is to us grownups about talking to young people like you about climate change. Well, first things first, you can't lie to us. You know, there are a lot of youth that I know um, and I'm sure you know, who have climate anxiety. And I think a lot of grown-ups' response to that would be, well, we can't tell them about climate change if it's making them so anxious. But that's not a solution either, because we're the ones holding you accountable. You have to tell us what's going to happen. You have to allow us to know so we can, you know, fight for our future. You have to listen to us, too, because, like, it's, it's really close to our hearts. And you have to really think outside the box. I remember in history class, we were talking about um, how societies fall. And one thing that uh, we discussed was that was a common factor in a lot of societies falling was um, that they have a belief system that has helped them for so long that is no longer helping them, but that they continue to hold up because it helped them before. And I think a lot of adults are in that position, you know, they've lived in this world for so long, they've lived in society for so long, I don't know, they feel like they can't change it that much. Whereas, you know, the youth are kind of like, no, we can, we totally can just completely get rid of something or change something completely. We don't have to stick to the way things are. And I think adults need to start thinking outside the box and thinking of the possibilities and not the limitations. Amelia, you are wise beyond your years, and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
Amelia Penny Crocker is a 15-year-old Halifax student who spent 2020 writing letters once a week to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And that does it for this week. Thanks to associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Molly Siegel and Lisa Johnson. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.